This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 169. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'll be your host today. And if you're interested in financial freedom with real estate, you're in the right place because that's what this show is all about, is how do people actually quit their jobs? And most people, while they may start out with single family house investing rentals or flipping houses, and that's what everybody teaches and talks about, they quietly actually quit their jobs with apartment building. So that's kind of what we're all about here. And some of the favorite shows we have are with people who have quit their jobs with real estate, specifically with multifamily. And today is no difference. Also want to make sure you know that we're just a couple of weeks away from Dealmaker Live. It's uh, going to be the largest multifamily conference in the country. We're actually at capacity uh, right now. And, and uh, I am working with our events manager to make some few extra tickets available. It's only a couple of weeks. And, and for some reason, people just do last minute. So I want to accommodate you guys. So maybe we can get another 100 people into the room. We have the ballroom at the Hilton Anatole in Dallas. This July 26, 27. Just Google Dealmaker Live and see if you can still grab a ticket. I can't guarantee it, but I'm going to try because I'm already getting emails going, Michael, there's no more tickets available. I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm sorry. I've been really, really excited about it. There's a really, really unbelievable roster of speakers and panelists. Robert Helms with Real Estate Guys, uh, Joe Fairless, Adam Adams, Corey Peterson, myself, of course. And then there's people who have never heard of before. These are real people doing real deals. Some of our students have done their first deals, and I want them to present these as case studies. Again, no one cares about how I scaled my portfolio from 100 to 1,000 units. They want to know, how did you do that first deal? How did you find a deal? How did you finance it? How did you raise the capital? And that's really what Dealmaker Live is all about. So it's going to be insane. If you're you know, a passive investor looking for good operators, it's a place to be. If you're a capital raiser, you're looking for deal finders, or if you're looking for capital. So the networking is going to be just amazing. So really excited about that. So anyway, enough about that. It's consuming a lot of my time, obviously, and I'm really super excited about that. But for right now, I am really excited to have Jerome Myers on the call. Uh, Jerome is a full-time multifamily investor. And what I love about him is he burned the boats. He quit his job. I mean, he just quit his job. He didn't have a single deal. He goes, I'm doing some of focus on this full time. And I've observed that people who do it, what I love about that, and I don't suggest it for everybody, but what I love about it is you really truly decided because people who do that, they're on board. There is no plan B. And the same thing from Jerome. And he struggled in the beginning with making the multifamily work. And he's going to talk about what he did in the meantime to make up for it and how he finally figured out the multifamily thing. And uh, today he's even getting into development. So really exciting stuff going from, you know, essentially from nothing to where he is today. So we're going to unpack his story. Let's get right into the interview with Jerome Myers. Here we go. Jerome, what's going on? Michael, you don't know how excited I am to be here, man. I listen to all of your episodes. So to actually be on the Michael Blanc podcast is like a dream come true, man. Well, you worked on it pretty hard over the last few years to quit your job, you know, or darn close to it. And uh, so that I want to get this on, on the air because this is a very, very important message, right? That's really what lights me up all day going, hey, I'm going to talk to Jerome, who's essentially financially free with real estate. Man, that lights me up right there. So I just want to unpack your story. Everyone's story is a little different, but what it does in, in my experience, and I get this feedback all the time, is like, my gosh, Jerome, well, you know, he if he was able to do it, I should be able to do it, right? right? And and that's the thing. Some people recognize themselves, and some people, some people, you know, don't. But fundamentally, thousands of people listening to this thing are going to go, 
man, I can do this. I can do this too. And so one of the things I want to start with you, uh, I was, you quit your job already and I'm fascinated by how people quit their job. It's kind of an interesting thing. It reveals a lot about people's nature. Like for example, when you're, when you play cash flow, uh, one-on-one, the Robert Kiyosaki game. Like when you see people play with money, like you'll see people, some people hoard their money, right? Some people are like, ah, they're spending their money. Like it just reveals a certain nature inside of people. And the people now, because I've, I've now talked to several dozen people who have quit their jobs right. and they do it all differently. You know, right. some people will wait forever to quit their job. They could have quit their job five years ago. But like, I just can't, I just, I just can't. Now in your case, you burned the boats. You're okay. like... I'm going to quit my job. I don't have a single deal really to, to speak of. I'm going to quit my job so I can focus on it full time. That's kind of crazy. Can you talk about why you chose to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think the long and the short of it was I got to a place in my life where I thought if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. Right. And we can always look for the perfect time. There's always going to be a reason why it's not the right time to do it. It's kind of like kids, right? You do them when you're young and you got plenty of energy, but you probably don't have a whole lot of money. You wait till you have more money, you have a little less energy, but there's always a reason why it's not the right time to do it. And I just got to a place where I was over it. I had the good fortune of building a really big business in corporate America. I was employee number two in a division. We took that from zero to about 175 employees and about $20 million in revenue. And I did that for somebody else. And my big feather in my cap was this $30,000 bonus. And, you know, we had like $6 million in profit. And I just thought there's something <laughs> wrong with this story. And when I added on the fact that my boss told me that I was already overpaid and I should be glad that I got what I got. I just felt deflated because I put my heart and soul into that thing. There was no blueprint for what we had done. It was a brand new project. And, you know, we got people from different companies and made them all feel like one team. And I thought, well, if I could do that for them, maybe I could do it for myself. And even if I don't make as much money up front, at least it's mine. And so I ran with that. The problem with you is that you had a very high paying job, which is difficult to replace. Again, back to the cash flow game. If you pull the janitor card, you're like, great, I'm going to be out in like uh, 35 minutes. On the other hand, if you pull the attorney card, you're going to be there for a while. So you're going to be there for a while. You got pretty cushy and comfortable. You could have easily gotten another job, program manager, director, or VP or something. And yet you decided to kind of, I guess, throw it all away. Why? I did. I was tired. And I think the other piece of it is I'd used the golden handcuff excuse for far too long. Uh, when I was, I guess, a second or third year engineer, somebody came and offered me a pretty big pay increase to move me and my family up north. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I came back. I talked to my manager. I had a great deal of respect for him and explained the situation. And he was like, no, Jerome, we can make an adjustment. And it was there that I realized, hey. People are only going to pay you as much as they have to pay you, right? It's they're trying to maximize the spread so that they can make as much as they can. And I was in a utility, so it wasn't truly what we see as a consulting firm where, you know, you're selling hours and trying to get the spread off of that person's time. But that was very clear indicator of how business works. And it's not the way that I run my business, but I understand, you know, capitalism and the goal is to make as much money as you can and pay the folks who are actually doing the work as little as you can. And I don't know that I completely agree with that. And I, I guess the other piece of it, Michael, 
when I quit was we had laid people off for two years in a row and it was around the holidays. And so for me, the holidays still don't make me happy. In fact, they probably make me sad. I remember arguing with my supervisor Christmas Eve one year about how we should try to keep people and how this wasn't the right decision. And, you know, these folks have put so much blood, sweat and tears into it and maybe put their lives on hold. And we were just going to put them on the street with a week of severance and they were going to get through Christmas, but New Year's, they didn't have a job. And that tore me inside out. I knew that I wasn't built for that. And I mean, it's part of it in corporate America. You got to make your quarterly numbers. And there's no humanity in that for me. And I didn't want to become that person. And so I knew that I needed to do something else because it was hard to look myself in the mirror because those people trusted in me. They did all that they could with what they had been tasked with. And there was nothing that I could do for, to protect them at the end of the day because, you know, although it was my P&L, it wasn't my business. And what made you think that real estate was a way out? And when you did decide to leave, what was your specific strategy to make it work? Well, I thought I was going to go buy an apartment building when I walked out the door. I thought it was going to be like a single family home. I walked in with my W-2 and I was going to use that for a little while. And I walked in with the bank statement and said how much money I had and you know my little bit of net worth and my big old credit score. And I thought, hey, this was just like a single family home. I hadn't been to podcast university or hadn't graduated from YouTube university yet. So I didn't really know what I was doing, but I got a reality check pretty quick. And they were like, no, that's not how this works. You don't have any experience doing this. And so you need to go get some experience or have a partner in the deal with some experience so that, you know, you guys can do this and we have confidence that you'll be successful. And so that was in January and maybe a little bit of February. I went to probably half a dozen to a dozen banks and tried to get somebody to say, hey, Jerome, we'd like you. And, you know, you did build a big business and you do have an engineering degree and you do have an MBA and all these other certifications. They didn't mean a hill of beans in the apartment world. So, <laughs> so I had true. to go fix and flip a house. So oh, is, that, is that what you did? Yeah. I mean, I knew that I didn't want to do that, but... I'd been lending money to some investors in town and I saw how much money they were making off of the money that I was lending them. I mean, we were charging them in the mid twenties for our money and you know, they were making 200% returns and they didn't care about that interest rate. And I got it. And I was like, okay, well, while I'm figuring out this apartment thing, let me do something to kind of build my real estate resume as far as me being an operator. And I mean, that became in super handy when we finally got into deals because, you know, part of value add strategies for a lot of apartments is renovating them. And so I, I got that on the ground, dirt under your nails experience. But the reality, uh, you know, they don't care that you fix and flip homes. You can fix and flip 500 homes. <laughs> they <laughs> they, don't. They're not going to do They don't care. The same thing happened to me. You know, was, oh, I flipped three dozen, you know, 2,000 houses. It just, it just doesn't matter. It, it took me by surprise as well. So you, you have obviously no problem taking action. You know, there's a lot of people who suffer from the opposite problem, which is analysis paralysis. You might suffer from the opposite problem, which is like you jump before you like make sure you get your parachute on. You know, and so there you are jumping. You're like, oh, crap, this isn't going to work the way I thought of it. And so you, to generate some cash, start to flip a house here and there. And while you're still working on the multifamily stuff. So while you're flipping a house here and there, what did you do to kind of try to make the multifamily thing work? 
Yeah, so believe it or not, I was standing on the porch of one of my fix and flip houses and an investor who had just finished buying an apartment building was driving by. He went to check on a house that they had just recently purchased. And he saw me standing out there. He's like, hey, man, let me check out your property. And we started chatting. He's like, hey, man, look, I'm looking at this deal, this apartment deal. Have you looked at it? What do you know about it? I was like, oh, my God, do not leave me out of this deal. Like, whatever you do, because it was the exact same deal I tried to buy in January or February. It, it was what I was trying to get to. And this was, I don't know, probably April or so, maybe early May. But what, what year are we in? 2017. Okay. And so, sure enough, he goes and makes the offer without me. He didn't need me to go do it, right? He, didn't he need already you. had apartment experience. He had plenty of money. He didn't need me in it. Well, he submitted the offer and the guy didn't accept. And so then he had to circle the wagons. He didn't know why he didn't accept, et cetera, et cetera. And so he went, one of the guys that you know I did a fair amount of business with, he went and talked to him. And he was like, hey, man, I need you as a partner on this deal. I think you can handle the construction. And he said, I think this is the same deal Jerome brought to me back in January. And he was like, I'm not doing this deal without him. And so I got back to the table that way. And so nice. we put together a strategy. The broker jumped on the team. And so, you know, it's a band of four going in to buy this apartment building. This time he accepted the number and we get under contract. And then we get a little deeper into it and we like, we need somebody else. We need property management expertise. And so we bring one more guy in. So it's, you know, the five of us going in and taking down this deal that I wanted to do by myself, but, you know, didn't have the right experience, you know, and I told the banks that I was like, we'll get third party property management, no big deal. And like, yeah, you still have the experience. So it came together. So you guys did that. So now obviously you, you did it by partnering, which by the way is a pretty much common theme. It's very rare that we talk to someone who is a one one man or one woman show. It's it's almost a, the partnering theme, the joint venturing theme is very, very common because it allows us to do things that we can otherwise not do. And this is another perfect example of that. Uh, you certainly tried. Now you definitely stuck with it and you got into this 23 unit with four or five other partners, which is great. And what happened then? Did that open up any kind of doors for you or or, or, or maybe not? This is a lot of first deal, man. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're the only person, I mean, I guess you coined the term, you're the only person that talks about it. But I mean, as soon as it hit the paper that we closed on it, I mean, I had bankers lined up. I had brokers lined up. Everybody wanted to talk to me. It was like I was somebody different than I was three days before, before we closed on the deal. And I mean, I had a, now my banker, he was one of those folks that called me right after that deal happened. And every deal, he gets opportunity to put debt on it. And at times before we even write a contract, we'll send them a deal. And I mean, before, you know, these folks didn't want to talk to me. But as soon as we closed and as soon as it hit the paper, it was like, oh, you're a totally different person. Now you have experience. You're the expert because you did it one time. Now you're the expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A single closing. Now you're the expert. So we did that. And so it did open doors. Now, this was a really heavy construction value add project. And so this is the second deal or the first one, the first deal. And that was part of the reason why I think they had the hesitation with working with me outside of the fact that I didn't have any experience. Right. It was just they wanted to have liquidity in case something went wrong. And a whole lot went wrong on the project. It's just part of it. Anytime you're spending that much money on construction, you're going to run into hiccups. And 
Fortunately, doing the fix and flips on the single families, and I did some pretty big ones. Um, I think my biggest one was probably $90,000 on the renovation budget. So I saw the good, bad, and ugly. I understood contractors and you know, I had got my contractor license just so I could make sure that the wool wasn't being pulled over my eyes. But, you know, at the end of the day, you only learn from the things that don't go well, right? The things that go well, it doesn't do any good. So the operators that are out there that say everything goes well and it's perfect, it just either it's not real or they're not doing deals that have big returns. And this one for us is going to be huge. So when we went in, we thought rents would be about 850 We've pre-leased a few of them for close to 1200 and you know we're bringing more to market over the next couple of weeks. I think we're targeting July 15th for 11 to be available. Wow, that's amazing. That's a heck of, heck of a value add right there. There's enough there for everyone. So you, you're talking about the second deal coming out online. Talk about the second deal. When did it happen? Uh, kind of, how did you find it and how did you put that together? Yeah, so the second deal was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was 28 units so spread across two addresses. So we had 20 townhomes at one address and two quads at another. In that deal, I went back to my network, had a guy that I sat on a board with for a long time. I had a classmate from college. I had a classmate from high school. And actually, I had one more classmate from college. And I mean, these guys got in with me and they wrote some really big checks from my perspective. Because, I mean, right, this is the second time I'm raising money and the first time I'm raising money for one where it's my contract because, you know, the other contract is the other guys. And so it's just like, we can actually do this. Like, this works. And so it took us, you know, it took us about a year to get the first one, six months to get the second one. And, I mean, it just happens more rapidly and a little bit bigger, right? And that deal didn't have the heavy value add, but we ended up renovating more units than we expected. You know, we thought we were going to go in and renovate four or five. And last week we finished number 13. And so, you know, that was a lot, but at the end of the day, we were able to blow our revenue projections off the water on this one. Expenses were higher, of course, but I guess that's part of it. The big thing is we were able to force appreciation to a level that I don't think we thought we could achieve. And now this deal you syndicated is that is that correct? No, it was still a JV. Um, oh, the JV. Uh -huh. Yeah, I we like I, I like the partnership model. I think because I wanted to acquire businesses, and I think we talked about this a little bit prior to this actual recording, but I like the idea of buying a business with real estate attached, and so when I can do these deals that are under a million dollars or right at a million dollars, I don't know that the burden of doing the syndication and not really knowing the partners that you're in business with excites me. I, I want to expose other people to this asset class and this investing model. And I think it's better if they're partners in the deal versus having them as, you know, LPs. It just, it gives them a little more credibility when they go into the space. And I think it also allows them to tell a better story. I think it's pretty cool for you to say, hey, I own that apartment building over there. What do you own? That's pretty cool. So what is your advice for trying to put these partnerships together? Know who you're partnering with. Like I said, everybody that was in this first deal, we had at least a 15-year relationship. And I watched them go off and be successful in other things. I know their children. I probably know their wives. Like 
these aren't people that I picked up just at the local RIA meetup. Now, with that said, it wasn't all good, right? Because I did pick up a property manager from the local RIA meeting and he didn't perform. Mm. And, you know, when we're thinking about doing renovations and need to get some heavy turns done, he didn't have the staff. And I remember distinctly getting an estimate for like $3,600 a turn a unit. And the bill came in at 65. And I said, what is this? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you need to pay that. We agreed to something a whole lot less than that. And so, you know, I had the background. So I stepped in and did the rest of the turn so that we could be at a more reasonable number. Because I truly believe at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. But, you know, my property manager and, you know, they're probably your most important partner, even if they don't have ownership, didn't perform. And in the end, we had to let them go. And to add insult to injury, he executed the early termination clause in our contract and took a quarter worth of fees because we terminated them. And for the life of me, if you can't execute on the renovation piece of the budget at the price that we agreed to, if you have a hard time filling units, I just kept going down this list of things that they weren't doing well. And I fought myself, right? Because he was my pick. I brought him to the table. And somebody asked me at one point, like, what would you have done different? Like, how can you, how could you vetted this guy better? And I said, I should have asked the president of the RIA, who's also a multifamily investor, why this guy isn't managing his stuff, because he has third-party management. And I, I should have took that as a signal, but I didn't. And we paid for that. I mean, in cash and in lost revenue and some other stuff. But at the end of the day, because I had the right partners in my deal, you know, they're not dragging me across the coals. And we're still exceeding our projections. But, you know, it's just the fact of the matter of, Make sure you really know who you're partnering with, especially your operational partner, because that will make or break your deal. Yeah. So we've done a lot of partnering up at this point. At one point, did you start syndicating? So we're in the process of doing syndication now. So we've got a big deal. We're doing a, I don't know what the final ticket will be, but it's probably going to be around $10 million. We're doing a 100 unit development deal. And so that is our first full way into syndication. And that syndication, I think, is absolutely necessary when you're, you know, a $3 million or $4 million raise. It gets really difficult to do that in $25,000 or $50,000 checks. You, you got to kind of expand the network and go a little bit faster. So we're in the beginning stages of that. We're doing our rezoning now. And, you know, we believe that that model is going to be sustainable for us going forward. How is uh, raising capital different uh, in this particular case, raising money from limited partners to obviously a partnership you're dealing with a lot less people. For you, how is it different? It's different because you don't have the familiarity with the folks who are investing. And you know they are more interested in your track record and what you've done in the past and not so much about you as a person. I mean, they want to know that you're honest, but outside of that, how can I be clear that, you know, you know what you're doing? The other stuff, the JV deals, they bet on me. They know about my work ethic. They know about my success in other industries. And so they're saying Jerome's smart enough to figure it out or find the right people to partner with. With a JV deal, they just want to know what you've done and what type of returns you've provided to the investors. And you know, that part is kind of shocking because I think you have to bet on the jockey, not the horse. 
but you know, everybody has their different approach. And so that's kind of been the experience for me. So how's your life different now that you're kind of working for yourself versus uh, before? I think I work harder for sure. I think everything that happened before had to happen in order for me to get to this place. You know, the analytical skills, understanding easements and a lot of the other stuff that's coming up. I am only comfortable in this space because of what I've done in the past. The one thing that I think can be challenging, especially for somebody with an engineering background, is all the ambiguity that goes into these things, right? You're used to getting to an answer and that this is the right answer. I think you know just as well as I, whatever model we make is wrong the day that we close. We're either high or low. We hope that we're high on expenses and low on revenue. But the fact of the matter is we know that we're wrong the day that we close. And so I'm used to getting to an exact answer. That's gone. And I think that probably is the toughest part because people want to know that they're right. And you just can't know. I laugh a lot and say, hey, man, these apartments are wild animals and you don't know what you have until after you close, right? People move out in the middle of the night. People who you thought were paying on time don't pay at all. And I mean, that is a shock to the system if you're not prepared for it. So you just got to be ready for the ride. So is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I can't imagine doing anything else. And, you know, I was making, you know, over six figures when I was working. And, you know, I did that pretty early on. And I don't make as much money as I used to. And that hurts in some places. But by the same token, I did save aggressively when I was raking it in, for lack of a better way of characterizing it. And so I'm able to pull on those reserves. And I I didn't grow my lifestyle to my income. I think that is the kind of the toughest part, right? Where we grow our lifestyle to whatever our income is. If you keep your lifestyle low, you grow your income, you get a spread. And if you can keep that spread, it gives you the freedom to go and do other things. And for me, financial freedom was like top one or two things as far as a priority in my life. You said earlier before the call, life's too short not to pursue your dreams. What do you mean by that? So my thesis on life is dreams should be real. I think we live in a society that teaches us and even encourages us to live a mediocre life, just fit in, go along to get along. And the reality is that we've each been placed here to do something special and unique. And so... I've got this thing called a thousand doors and a hundred people. And the mission is to help a hundred people create income through real estate so that they don't have to spend time working on the money problem, right? Figuring out how they're going to cover their living expenses. And then they're free to go do the things that they're most passionate about. I think that's the way that we make the world a better place. And oh, by the way, when you invest with the right group, they're going to do good in the community while doing well by the investors. We're, we're going to deliver returns, but we're not going to leave people living in squalor because some of that is on the landlord. There are some people who don't take care of get it, but the overarching theme of the property and taking care of bugs and making sure that plumbing works the way it's supposed to work, like that is on the owner. And my skin cringes when I see people living in substandard conditions. Every time I go into due diligence, I see it, and it just makes my stomach hurt. And meanwhile, uh, owners clearly make money off something like that, and I cringe as well. 
when I see that. And my, our favorite projects are the ones where we can fix that. If it's truly in a class B minus or C neighborhood, not in a, in a D neighborhood, and we can fix it. Not only can we make money, but we can actually literally improve the quality of life of the people there as well. What advice do you have, Jerome, for someone who wants to do what you have done? Get a coach. Hmm. I mean, I, I did it the wrong way, right? Podcast you, YouTube you. It's good information. And the fact of the matter is I still probably listen to 40 hours of content a week. But, you know, I walked around in the dark the first few months. Like I could have skipped that whole three or four month process of trying to go to the bank and figure out how to get it done on my own. Right. Somebody could have told me before I even went in there, that's not going to work. But let's pair you with such and such who has experience. And now you guys make a really nice team and you can go down and take this down. I just learned so much by actually going through it versus the sage wisdom where somebody's looking over your shoulder and saying, yeah, that's probably not the right way to do that. Go do this. Or, hey, that doesn't make sense. The way that you're thinking about it, have you considered this? Like those things are invaluable from a time perspective, right? So you're able to ramp up a whole lot quicker with that ramp up, it allows you to do more deals. But there's different levels of coaching and everybody doesn't have 30 or $40,000 to do it. And there's other options. But depending on what your goals are, you got to be willing to make that investment in order to get into the game. I mean, yeah. people pay for college degrees and a lot of times what they learn in them, they don't use them. But for this specific thing, there are people who will walk through the process with you the whole way. And that's probably worth more than what your student loan debt is worth because, I mean, if you do this right, you can retire quickly and well from apartment investing. Yeah, I mean, I observe the same way. I mean, coaching, obviously, there's an investment involved there, right? Because going to YouTube and listening to podcasts is free. I do believe everyone eventually achieves their goal, but I do observe that people who uh, get a mentor, an experienced mentor, they just fast track it. They're doing bigger deals. They're partnering with other people. They're avoiding the big mistakes. And that's really the power of mentoring. And certainly, I didn't do that. When I got in my restaurants in 2006, I did not do that. I was like, I got money. I'm the man. You know, I don't need any help. <laughs> Look where that got me. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's good advice. And I I think if you can't afford a mentor, then definitely you know joint venture with someone else. So that's that's like a no brainer for me because you align yourself with someone who is more senior than you are, and they can get the loan, they can raise the money, and you're you're learning a ton as well. Yeah, I agree completely. I I think the only thing that I will add to that is add value. Right? Don't come and say, okay, tell me what to do next. Tell me what to do next. Like bring an opinion. And even if it's wrong, have a discussion about it, but you need that diversity of opinion so that you can have different perspectives. Everybody's looking at the same thing. And who knows, you might ask a dumb question that saves you guys from losing money. Like, I mean, on that first deal we did, the foundation sunk enough that it damaged the main sewer pipe. That costs money. Right. And we saw that it did. We saw that it sunk, but we didn't think that it impacted the plumbing that well. Although all of the signs were there. Right. We have backup sewage in the, in the uh, shower. We have backup sewage in the kitchen sinks. It was there. We just wrote it off as, oh, yeah, no worries. We'll fix it. Fortunately, we didn't go in and put the new sinks and cabinets and all that other stuff in before realizing how big the problem was. That would have been a disaster. 
Would you suggest people do what you do with regard to burning the boats, just going full time? And if so, how to architect that? So, you know, I had a year's worth of savings. I don't remember if I said that or not. I had a year's worth of savings before I left. So it wasn't like I just jumped out and I needed my paycheck next month to pay my mortgage or to pay whatever other bills I had. Financially, I, I built a runway. And then, you know, there was some other capital available to me if I needed that. So I think the first step is make sure that you're in a financial position to do what you need to do. And I hate to say it, but apartment investing isn't for the person that's living paycheck to paycheck. You're going to have to do some sacrificing, get yourself financially fit, and then go off and do this because you never know when the deal is going to come. You don't know if it's two months, two weeks, or two years. I mean, there are people who look at deals for a really long time and just can't get in one. And, you know, just to buy a deal at a high cost basis, just to say you had a deal is a mistake that you will pay for for years to come. And, you know, it's always interesting to see people and understand the numbers of their deal and know that they're not going to make any money, but they say they did it just to say they had the experience. That is a financial mistake. And, you know, if you're doing it right with the right people, you don't speculate. Like these are all very calculated decisions that we're making and the risks are pretty well evaluated and the contingency plans are created for it. I mean, that's part of the reason why so many engineers are playing in the space. And then, you know, the business owner piece of it is, you know, having that stomach for the ambiguity and being able to make sense of a bunch of different facts that don't seem to be related, but are absolutely correlated if you've got the experience to see the pattern. So, you know, I, I think getting in a place where you're financially fit is the first step. And then two, if you're going to do it, do it. It's kind of like pulling that Band-Aid off slow, right? You got hair on your arm and you're pulling it off slow and it hurts and it hurts and it hurts versus doing it with some intensity. Just snatch it off, experience the pain for the five seconds and then move on. Like that in and of itself is, from my perspective, a win. Um, and so, you know, me and my friends talk a lot about intensity and getting, like run through the desert, don't walk, like get through the desert so that you're on the other side drinking the cool glass of water. Yeah, that's all so awesome. Hey, congratulations again, Jerome, on, uh, on what you've got going and the plans for development. How can people connect with you? We are, I think the best way is our website. So it's developing, but the ease are three. So D3V3LOPNG.com. You can find out more about our track record. You can find more about the other things that we do at Myers Development Group. And, you know, there's a contact us form on there. You can jump on and send that. And I answer all those emails because, you know, new people is important to me. Part of my thing is growing the network and the brand right now. And so, you know, We'll schedule a call and I'll let you learn more about me. We also got a little podcast called Dreamcatchers. And that podcast is available on all of the major outlets, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, whoever. And, um, you know, I've got a few episodes up there to talk about me and what I've done. And then there's a lot of other people who I've met over the past however many years I've been on this earth who've inspired me. And so we get them on there and it's just everyday people doing extraordinary things. And they tell us about what they did and then how they got there. Because one thing we focus on is tactics. Like, is it early rise? Is it exercising every day? Is it meditating? What is it that has allowed you to accomplish what you want to accomplish with 
versus the times that it did. Yeah, so cool. Jerome, thank you for being on the show. It was great being with you, Mike. Thanks. I love what Jerome said about life's too short not to pursue your dreams. And he's not that really that old. So it's really insightful that he says, hey, I can't do this again. I can't keep working and making money for someone else. I can do this for myself. And it's not that he's working any less. He's just doing it on his own terms. And he just recognized that he wants to pursue his, his dreams. And I just love the decision that he made to kind of burn the boats. And I, he says, you know, like rip off the Band-Aid. Again, I don't recommend it for necessarily everyone. Either way, you got to make sure that your financial runway set. And that's that's what he talked about as well. In this case, he had savings. Some people wait. They wait until the cash flow is there or the acquisition fees are there to kind of quit their job, whatever the case may be. But what I love about ripping off the Band-Aid is it doesn't leave a lot of room for failure for a plan B. And I find a lot of people, especially people who have actually pretty good jobs, a pretty nice house, nice family, have their health, everything's pretty good. And they strut to try to do this thing. And when things get tough, they just say, ah, screw it. I'm just going to go with plan B because my plan B ain't so bad. And the people who burn the boats either virtually or, or, or literally are the most successful. And if you're one of those people where your life ain't so bad, then you got to do something to essentially make your current trajectory unacceptable. And that's kind of what Jerome did. And he goes, man, I could do this again. And I kind of felt the same way with my software startup company. You know, it's like, I could do this again, but man, I worked my butt off the last five years. And yes, I made a bunch of money, but that probability of making that money again is like close to zero. I mean, we IPO'd in 2000, right? I mean, who IPOs these days anymore? Maybe you, maybe you get bought if you're lucky, even that is remote. And it's right now the lifestyle I wanted when my kids were growing up as well. I was like, man, I had young kids at the time, but if I were to do that right now, I'd miss them grow up. Like, that's not right. Like, it doesn't appeal to me at all. And so you have to make your current trajectory as quote good as it might be completely unacceptable. And in Jerome's case, he basically forced the issue by quitting a job. So I love that. And he just knew that he had to pursue his dreams and he was radical about it. So I respect that. He also said it's really never perfect. And that's that's true. It's never perfect perfect to do anything in life like people who are working for the right time to do anything it just never happens and if you're waiting for that it's never going to come it's just accept it. it's never going to come so something's always going to be wrong and so the third thing he said was uh, was partner and and if you've listened to this podcast for any moment of time there's a very common theme here around partnering and joint venturing and that's really what i love with our for example our mentoring students because we kind of force the joint venturing between them. So we get, we really want to know what are you good at? What is your opportunity right now? So if someone's good at finding deals and analyzing deals and they have a, a deal right now, we want to pair them with someone who has the ability to raise capital. And so uh, if someone has done a deal or two, we want to pair them as well, right? So the joint venturing is very, very powerful. And in, Jer in Jerome's case, for example, you couldn't get financing for that first deal because it was just himself. Align yourself with a more experienced person, boom, all of a sudden magic happens. And the second time around, you may not have to do it again. Now, we're, for example, we're doing it still to this day with Nighthawk Equity. Our Nighthawk Equity is our real estate arm. You can go to nighthawkequity.com and you can look at the kind of deals that we've done. And that's kind of our real estate, you know, our, our real estate arm. Uh, and we have passive investors and we buy deals. Well, that's kind of what we do. But even there, we joint venture. We, we, we joint venture with capital raisers, for example. So that way we don't have to raise all the money ourselves. Uh, we've recently uh, partnered with a high net worth group to help us attract private equity for a $35 million deal, right? So even we are partnering to do bigger and greater things that allows us to do more. It's, it's the same thing. So partnering is a common theme. And the fourth thing he says is get a coach. 
And yes, we have a coaching program. It's the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And you can schedule a free call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. Uh, it is a fairly heavy investment, but the results are unbelievable. I mean, we have almost 100% success rate of the people that do what our coaches say to do. And our coaches are all full-time investors. They've done what you want to do. And this group of guys now is amazing. I mean, see some people who are super, super seasoned and find these people is not very easy, right? These are people who not only are successful, they're nice guys, and they share my passion for helping people. It's a very rare combination. So really privileged to be working with with the people that are on a team, and you're going to meet a lot of them at DealMaker Live as well. But what I'm saying is, if you have the ability to invest in yourself, this is the way you can get the highest return on your investment is by grabbing a mentor. And so that was good that he picked up on that. Again, there's lots of free uh, information out there as well. We have a YouTube channel. We have this podcast. We have a book cost 10 bucks called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. My goal is to just put out really high quality free content and eventually it will it will get there, okay? I, I truly believe that if you are persistent enough and uh, you will eventually get there and if you can afford it, you can accelerate the process. So anyway, so really excited about uh, DealMaker Live coming up. I'm really kind of glad when it's over as well, probably sleep a couple days, but I'm so looking forward to seeing many of you there. The speakers are really cool and I'm just really looking forward to it. And I hope that you're inspired by this podcast with Jerome today. Everyone's story is a little bit different, but what it proves is that you have to be resourceful. You have to be driven. You're presented with different set of challenges that the other guy or gal doesn't have and you just figure it out and you just get it done. So with that, you guys take care. Have a great day. All right, great rest of the week. Catch you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.